Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Welcome back, listeners. And today we have a very exciting guest. We have Rick Lofgren, the president and CEO of Children's Organ Transplant Association, also known as CODA. The Children's Organ Transplant Association is a national charity based in Bloomington, Indiana, which is dedicated to organizing and guiding communities and raising funds for transplant-related expenses. CODA's priority is to assure that no child or young adult is denied a transplant or excluded from a transplant waiting list due to lack of funds. Rick has over 24 years of experience. However, Rick, I liked how your staff put it more you have over 24 years of stories <laughs> that's very true so we're gonna be, we're very excited to hear from you today absolutely well, you. and we usually start our episode with a quote so um i will jump in with a quote of giving is not about making a donation it's about making a difference by kathy calvin that's terrific yeah so rick uh anything that you would like to add about yourself that the audience might like to know um, I, I do have 24 years of stories at CODA. Uh, that is very true. I've been in fundraising for uh, close to 35 years, and it has been something that I've been very passionate about. I think one of the things that your listeners will appreciate is the fact that they are making a difference in the lives of the patients that they're serving, and we feel like we're doing the same thing through fundraising. And part of what we try to do is to ensure that families can focus on making sure they're following whatever they're being told at the transplant center, this is what you need to do, that having the fundraising available to make sure that all those things can happen, everything is paid for, all those clinic visits are not a problem for a family to fit into their budget. That's why we exist. We want to be that support vehicle to help ensure that your patients and their families are able to get through the transplant journey as safely and securely as possible. I really appreciate that. That's so important. And uh, as you know, the reason we started this podcast is because we wanted to put the human element back into transplant. Most of the information out there related to transplant is very medical based, which is great, but there's people behind this that make it work, right? And so part of that goal is to raise awareness about those resources, educate why the resources are there and why they're important. And, um, you know, even our patient listeners that may not be familiar with it too. It's just a good way to get it out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we did steal your mission statement from your website, <laughs> but I do, <laughs> but I do appreciate you sharing why that's important and gosh, 35 years in fundraising. So how did you get into fundraising and specifically transplant fundraising? Um, the, the short version of a long story is that I right out of college, went to work for the development office of the university my wife and I attended and, um, how I got into transplant was I had a cousin that had unfortunately an unsuccessful bone marrow transplant many years ago and saw what his family who lived in Indiana did with my uncle and my other three cousins living at home and my cousin and my aunt going to UCLA in Los Angeles and having the family living literally across the country from each other for months and months. And so when I was presented this opportunity, I thought this is a way for me to not only do something that I know is important to help patients in general, but also 
for my own family to be able to feel like I was giving back to do something that was very important and was part of our, our family's history. And so I see that what we do every day is something that every family like my own could have benefited from. And as I talk to families day after day, it's amazing to me how we can make their journey that much easier Certainly transplant is not an easy process for anyone, but if we can take some of the stress off their shoulders, they can focus on their patient as opposed to focus on how do we pay for these things and then the patient on top of that, we want to make sure that the stress level is as low as possible so that they can make good decisions and get through this process safely. Mm-hmm. We love that. And, you know, it, it seems to always be that there's a personal story that's always involved with those that get into transplant. There's a reason. There is. So I always love, thank you for sharing that about your family. So you kind of hit on where this becomes the passion for you and a little bit about why the fundraising is so important, but can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Why is fundraising such a big deal when it comes to transplant and to know about fundraising for patients and to know about it from the social work perspective? Well, I think one of the things that hit me when I started 24 years ago at CODA was that everyone assumed that patients had access to resources. Everyone assumed that there was insurance to cover things, whether you had private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. And I think a lot of the things that families don't know until they get in the midst of this process is that there are many things that aren't covered. So for instance, if you have private insurance, those co-payments and deductibles aren't covered. If you're at the hospital for weeks and sometimes months on end, maybe the parent or the spouse or both parents are unable to work. And so at the time when your expenses are dramatically going up, your income has gone down dramatically. And so the the opposite effect of that is that parents and families are put into a very difficult situation. And so when I started, it seemed like all those things were coming together. I think a lot of the living related donations were really limited more to kidney than from some of the other organs. And we're starting to see a lot more of that. Um, I think what one of the things that we can do to help families across the country is to focus on what are those things that we can take off your plate. And we'll talk to families about, we want you to focus on your loved one. Let us focus with your volunteer teams, whether that's a aunt or uncle, a grandparent, someone in your local faith community, but let us work with somebody else to let you keep your focus where it needs to be. And that is on your family to make sure not only is your patient taken care of, but those other family members as well, who sometimes may feel like they're being neglected because that one ill patient is the one that's getting all the attention. We wanna make sure that your focus as a parent or as a spouse is where it needs needs to be and that's on your family. No, I really appreciate that. And you've mentioned parent a few times. And so is CODA only for pediatric patients or how does that work? You know, that's a great question. And Kristen, one of the things that we struggle with is our name. Um, Children's Organ Transplant Association is a little bit of a misnomer on multiple levels. Um, We work with patients up to age 21, regardless of their diagnosis. And if they have a single gene disease like polycystic kidney disease, sickle cell, uh, cystic fibrosis, those are all diseases that qualify regardless of how old a patient is. And so we can help families, whether the patient is 21 or younger, or if they have a single gene disease, it it could be an older patient as well. In fact, our oldest patient was 63. It was a gentleman who had cystic fibrosis and was transplanted in Boston a number of years ago. Uh, He's still doing very well, but saying that we're just children is a little bit not a little off. And then we don't just work with organ patients. Uh, We also work with about 30% of our families are receiving a bone marrow, stem cell, cord blood, uh, TPIAT or islet cell transplant. So there are a number of other things that aren't solid organs that uh, we work with. And then finally, association tends to be a group that you have to pay to be a part of, and we don't charge anything for our services. So it has been a 24-year process for me to try to get our our name to better reflect what we actually do. Um, Unfortunately, I have not been successful at that. And 
our, our board has said that name works and we're going to stick with it. But we do a lot of things that our name does not suggest we do. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> well, I just throw a curveball question at you then, Rick. Please. All right. So you said not just transplant. So if, if you're familiar with Chris and I or not, but we also work with LVAD patients, left ventricular yes. assist device. So what about the population that may have gotten that as it, there's children that get LVADs as well as sometimes the young adults. So would that be something, could we refer our patients to you? Yes. And that's a great question, Tiffany. If, if your patients are at some point in their, their care process going to be listed for transplant or transplant is a possible outcome for them, then absolutely. Case in point, we have a, a little boy at Riley Hospital for Children, which is about 10 minutes from my home here in Indianapolis. And he has an LVAD right now and is waiting for his heart transplant. So that absolutely is another population that we can help that perhaps our name does not suggest that we, we could. But yes, definitely we can help. Wonderful. So Rick, it sounds like you've thought and uh, thought about what your name should be. So if, if you could, if you could throw out the also known as name, what would you throw out there? Well, years ago, I went to a conference and one of the other sponsors was an organization and, and you'll laugh at this, but it was uh, Transplants Are Us. So kind of like Toys Are Us, uh, <laughs> that kind of is what we are, but someone's already taken that name. So I'm, I'm kind of stymied of what the next one would be. I can come up with a lot of things, but Kristen, honestly, they're probably a full sentence. And I want something that's short that people can remember. And honestly, code is pretty easy for people to remember. So that, that I think is the wisdom of our board in not letting me <laughs> persuade them. But uh, it definitely doesn't always say what we do. That is very fair. <laughs> we could change that a little bit to still be CODA and be Children and Others Organ Transplant Association. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like your job description that says other duties as assigned, we could be that other. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which is perfect because with the transplants are us, um, and I apologize, Tiffany, for interrupting. Um, but I want to know, Rick, what is the most creative fundraising idea that you have ever seen? You know, I've been asked this question and it has changed over time, but probably the most fun fundraiser we have uh, is a, a game called Cow Pie Bingo. Um, it is something that has been very effective in more of our rural communities. And we do fundraisers in every type of community across the country. And during the pandemic, more of the fundraisers were actually done online and, and virtually. But Cow Pie Bingo really is my favorite. And what you do is you take either a field or a large parking lot and you create squares. And usually it's done in rural communities because there's a farmer that has a cow that you can put out on the field. And you actually take bets of where the cow will relieve themselves. And whoever has chosen that that square, they they win whatever the prize is. But that that's something that uh, we've had a lot of fun with. We talk about that um, I, I don't know if I could tell you if it was 10 times or 100 times that it's been done, but every time it's done, it's talked about quite a bit because it just is one of those things that is very memorable. But right now, a lot of people are doing <laughs> virtual fundraisers that would combine your live, let's say, 5K with a virtual 5K so that if for those of us that are runners, if you can't be somewhere at Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, you could run your 5K at any time and still raise money to help benefit the patient that we're working with. But it's really been kind of nice that the pandemic has forced people to think about what are creative ways to do things that we've always done, but do them in a way where you don't have to do them the same method and step-by-step -step that we had done in the past. It's really been very effective and really increased the number of people who have been able to participate in some of those events. So it, it's been a, a great outcome 
from a long-term standpoint for, for our families. So a question I want to throw in there to follow up is because, you know, like we've mentioned, you've got so many stories. Have you noticed a difference between urban and rural communities and how they yes. fundraise? We have, and I think this is probably not going to surprise anyone, but usually small towns, people know each other better than you do if you lived in a large city. Mm-hmm. Um, looking out my window here at home, I live in a, a small community where people still every night when they come home, they drive in their driveway, pull their car into the garage and shut their garage door behind them. I might not see my neighbors once winter comes here for three or four months. And so I think being in a small town allows people to know each other better. So we know small town fundraising events are much more based in a faith community, in a local school, some kind of uh, networking group that people are part of, like a Rotary Club or something like that. Whereas larger cities, we tend to find that larger events where you get people to come to an activity on a set day really work well. But across the board, honestly, the virtual events are, are making a great impact. And what's funny is that Coda, as an organization, we always had virtual events available. It's just until COVID was something that was what we were all talking about. No one wanted to do that because they thought about, well, let's let's do the fish fry. Let's do the pancake breakfast. Let's yeah. do the golf outing. We didn't need to do that. But it's been nice to see that we can then make something new out of a, an old and existing fundraiser that everybody knows about. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. I think that we, we all can agree to that because we've even in the social work community seen where like virtual support groups are becoming more widely accepted and utilized. And so absolutely that virtual platform has its cons, of course, but um, has been very beneficial for a lot of communities. So thanks for touching on that. Well, and I think one of the things that you just pointed out, Kristen, is very important. I, a lot of the support groups that we work with are those that are virtual and, it, and I'll use one example, transplant families. That's um, the base of the organization is in Phoenix, but they have uh, families that participate literally all over the country. Huh. And it's been nice to be able to see how families can come together and, and parents, regardless of the type of transplant their child needs, being able to connect with other families that maybe are going to the same hospital, but perhaps live in different states. Uh, perhaps they're not going to the same place for the transplant, but they're having a specific issue that they wonder, is anyone else dealing with this? And I think that virtual component has made it a lot easier for people to communicate rather than having to physically come and sit in a room like mm-hmm. we used to do at Ronald McDonald houses all the time, mm-hmm. where you'd have a support group that met at six o'clock on a Wednesday evening. Sure. It just wasn't always the healthiest thing to put families together in those situations. And I think the virtual aspect has made that a lot easier and probably safer for those families. Absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, and so that begs a question too, is what's something, so that was good information to know about. I actually wrote that down, Transplant Families, and we'll share that with our, our listeners as a resource. But what's something that you wish that transplant social workers would do more or that should do more in educating families or should engage with the fundraiser partnerships more? You know, that's a a really good question because I think there are so many things that social workers have to keep on top of. I don't think it's possible for you to be experts in every area. And we certainly can't be experts in the social. (laughs) (laughs) When you have your next evaluation, you want to let people know you are an expert in every area. But exactly. We we really try to do our best whenever a family comes to us and has a 
an issue that really requires counseling, we try to push them back to the support group that they're part of, push them back to their social worker. We try not to step out of our lane. And I don't say that to say that we can't do things, but we really want to make sure that we focus on those things that we can do very well and help them find a resource whether that's a person or a group that can do what we can't do and do it very well. So we really want to make sure that we're not putting on a, a social worker's hat because that we don't have. None of us are MSWs. And we really want to focus on the things that we do well and push people to where they can find the resource that will help them the best. And so that's whether the local hospital they're going to, it's their social worker, is it that support group? And there are many others like transplant families that are doing incredible things, but making sure that they're getting the help that they need where it's closest to the action. And I think that's important. One of the things that I don't ever want to do is give someone my personal opinion on anything other than fundraising. I'm happy to share that. But if you were to ask me, what do I do when, when my child's experiencing this, or if my spouse is not able to work in experiencing this. Mm -hmm. That's not my area of expertise and none of our staff members are prepared to do that. So that's why we want to make sure we're putting them in a position where they're talking to the right person that can help them the most there. And I really appreciate that because, yeah, well, because we have to make sure that we stay, like you said, we stay in our lane, but also sometimes it can be challenging to say either I don't know, or I'm not the right person to answer that. We want to be the one that, that can answer all the questions. So it does take a lot of, um, grace and humility to be able to to stick within those boundaries. And I, I think for the benefit of the patients that we're working with, that's the best thing for them. And all of us want what's best for our patients and, and the families that we're serving. I, I think that's one of the things, and back to the original question, I think if social workers could help us by saying, here's the organization or a group of organizations can help you with fundraising, social media, send us send them to us and we'll do the same and send families that need additional assistance back to you that is definitely outside of our expertise. But I, I have found, and, and we've done some research on this. In fact, last January, we did a survey and we surveyed not only the families that are working with us, but families that chose not to work with us. We asked them, how did you hear about us? Who was the most important person or influential person in your decision-making process? And 80% of them said their social worker was. Really? And so we know that eight out of 10 families that work with us, it is a social worker that has said, you need to do this and here are resources that are available. As a parent myself, if, if my kids needed help, I would want to look at all the organizations, lay them out on the kitchen table. My wife and I would make a decision based on what was best for our family. Sure. And we want to do the same for, for your patients and, and their families as well. But I think that's the most important thing is for the social worker who is the most influential person in every transplant patient's life, make sure that they share that information, that there are resources available to help. That wow. uh, is music to our ears. Um, and <laughs> I think to, to something you said earlier of trying to take things off the plate of the families, I think it goes the same with if we know that we have the trusted resource to, to send our patients to learn more about fundraising, to be able to get assistance with that, we can focus on what we're doing directly with the patient and their families too. So it's kind of a two-way street there, which is very much appreciative. Well, it's always interesting to me, and this has happened dozens and dozens of times over the years, where a social worker will come and say, I thought so-and-so was working with you. They came to my office and needed this resource. And we've come to find out that that family had tens of thousands of dollars in the CODA campaign fund that we could have been helping them with, but they were asking their social worker for that resource. And so our hope is that if 
you can send people our way, we'll send people for the, the needs your way, making sure that we're not all having to do each other's jobs, but just making sure that we say we can complement what's going on without having to be the expert in that area. So that that's where we think there's so much more that we could be doing there. But I think we've, we're off to a very good start. It's just a matter of getting more of those families into the system, whether it's with CODA or one of the other fundraising organizations. No, I, I really appreciate that. And um, I... I'm curious. Uh, so I, we had, I had a next question in mind, but then I decided I was going to mix it up. <laughs> Can you share a, uh, a, an inspirational story of a, or a success story, one that has really stood out to you? Like, yes, this is why I do what I do. Uh, one comes to mind immediately, and I'm actually going to be meeting with this family next week when I'm in Phoenix. Um, we had a patient that over 30 years ago uh, was doing very well as a two-year-old and uh, went into a coma, was lifelined out to UCLA and received a liver transplant within a matter of a, a few days. That young man today is 32. Uh, he's married, he's working in construction and all the things that the volunteer team 30 years ago did to raise money, Ben is now accessing those funds. So his mom and dad have stepped away um, they're both still active in his life, but they've stepped away from the fundraising. They've stepped away from submitting the receipts. And Ben is now doing that. And honestly, that is the story that I tell when I talk to new families that I can hear in the mom or the dad or the spouse's voice, that fear and that that unknown of what's coming next and what, what can we expect out of this process to be able to say, here's a situation, Ben's 32 years old and 30 years post-transplant. This is what we hope will be the outcome for your family as well. And I think that's one of those that I can point to and say, in every case, uh, there's always a follow-up question. There's always you know, what happened there that we wish we would know so that we yeah. could do the same thing. But that's a story that I, I probably tell three or four times every week because it really is so inspirational that that family has gone through this. And obviously they've had lots of ups and downs over the past 30 years. Sure. But just looking at him, Ben looks like a linebacker. He's probably six foot three, about 240 oh, pounds. <laughs> he, he's as healthy as a horse, competitive swimmer still. Wow. But he's, he's that patient that I always point to and say, this is who we'd like you to become at some point from a health standpoint after your transplant takes place. Yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. That's incredible. So that being said, what do you see for the future of fundraising? You know, I, I thought for a while that the Affordable Care Act would make us less necessary. And unfortunately, the outcome has been that more of the things that we're paying for today are things that happen away from a hospital. So as an example, more than 60 cents of every dollar that we pay out for our family's needs are going for things that don't happen through the insurance world. So it's not a copayment or deductible. It's not a medication, even though we do pay for those things. The vast majority of what we're paying out right now are things like transportation and lodging, household expenses, so that yeah. when a family goes to Houston from Albuquerque, they have a home to come home to because we're making sure that their mortgage is taken care of. They're able to get to their clinic visits and stay compliant because we are able to help with gas money. Mm -hmm. If they're staying overnight in a hotel or with one of our partners uh, that provide lodging, where where can they stay? Where can they reach out to for funding for that? that? That's part of what we do. And some of those little basic things that if you think about it, my, my wife just had uh, knee replacement surgery. Every time we go get a prescription, it's another $30. Well, yeah. just for a, a single knee replacement surgery, she had eight different medications. Oh, so for our family, 
$30 times eight, and all of a sudden that starts to add up. Yeah. In our case, that's a month's worth of prescriptions. In our, our transplant family's case, it's that month every month, and mm-hmm. it's for that patient's lifetime. And so when we talk about a lifetime of support, that's really what we're talking about. It's those smaller things that as a one-off, it's not as big of a deal, but when you add up, it's a one-off today, one-off tomorrow, mm-hmm. five more next week it just becomes a a much bigger expense than people realize as they're just entering this world. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. Uh, When I go through my evaluation with patients, a lot of times they say, why do you need to know my finances? Why do we need to talk Mm -hmm. about finances? I have health insurance. It's going to cover the surgery. Why, why is this a problem? And you, you touched on that perfectly. Well, I think it's one of those situations and, and you see this every single day with your patients People don't know what they don't know. And until they've been living it for a while, it's hard to know. These are the things that you just can't anticipate. And even if you talk to someone that's been through it, there are large gaps in their memory of of what happened way back when. And the first year of post-transplant is a lot harder than people realize from a, a cost standpoint. Things start to even out as time goes by, but there's just no way that you can go into this and and know what to expect. Right. These are the things that people don't talk about too. Talking about money is very difficult. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> so uh, I think that one of the last questions is, is there anything else that we should have asked you? Well, I think the one big thing is something that everyone probably has heard about and, and maybe saw something this uh, this past week or maybe in the past month, and that's GoFundMe. One of the mm-hmm. things that we deal with on a regular basis are, are families that come to us and immediately want to get started. And we want to make sure that they know that there are things that we can do to help them right out of the gate. But one of the things that we advise families not to do is to use GoFundMe. And the reason is it is a for-profit entity, whereas a charity like CODA is a, a 501c3, much like a hospital or a church. Gifts that go to that organization are tax deductible for the church contributors, but then the funds that we pay out are also not taxable. So for instance, what we were just talking about a moment ago with co-payments and deductibles, medications, those household expenses we discussed, those are things that would come out of CODA funds that are not taxable and do not cause any problem with Medicare or Medicaid, no tax implications. If you do the same thing with GoFundMe, that money is not tax deductible. And so that is considered income for you. We've had patients in the past that have either been disqualified for their Medicare or Medicaid, or they've had to start paying a premium for that because their asset level had gone up. Mm-hmm. Money that comes to CODA is not considered an asset of the family. It's CODA's that we pay on their behalf. But GoFundMe, that money usually is going into the bank of the account of the patient's parent or spouse that sets it up. And so it does create some some additional difficulties. That's not to say that GoFundMe is a, a bad organization. If you're trying to do something small, like raising sure. $100 or a couple hundred dollars, it's, it's a great option. But none of our transplant families are, are in need of $100 or $200. They're in need of thousands of dollars and a lifetime of expenses and a lifetime of help. And that's why I encourage your listeners, take a look at them if you'd like, but please know that the, the charities that do this like CODA are a much better option for, for all of our families. Absolutely. Well, Rick, we thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. One of the things, if you will do this with us, we do every episode is a Likert scale and ah. kind of a check-in to see how are we doing? Um, you know, just like when you go to the doctor, you get the vitals checked beforehand. This this is, this is our method. So I'm going to pose a question and I'll, I'll ask Kristen to answer first, allowing you some time. But on a scale of a major recording artist concert with all proceeds going to your fundraising account to having to sell candy bars door to door for fundraising, where would you put yourself at today? 
And so we'll, we'll make Kristen go first. All right. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> um, I would say that I, I'm at Girl Scout cookie level. Like everyone's <laughs> looking forward to it. They've been pining after those cookies for all year. So I'm not, I'm not made, I'm not Taylor Swift here, but <laughs> I am, I'm not candy bar door to door. But you're not candy bar door to door. People are coming to you. Okay. <laughs> That's yes. People are coming to me for my Girl Scout cookies. That's yes. correct, Tiffany. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Well, I, I have to say, and I'm going to brag just for a second. And when you Ooh. said earlier, the 24 years of stories, it's, it's true. A few years ago, when my daughter was in college, she sang for the choir at Butler University and a, a rather well-known touring artists came through Indianapolis and they always recruit a choir from a local college to sing with them. And at this point, uh, it was the Rolling Stones and my daughter sang in the choir with the Rolling Stones wow. and was on stage about five feet apart from Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And uh, I have a picture of her on the Jumbotron about 50 feet tall. So uh, I would say I'm more on the concert side, maybe not Taylor Swift, but maybe Rolling Stone side for fundraising, but I have done everything from selling candy bars to doing car washes to having free will offerings at church services, all the way up to doing major special events that raise, we had an event that raised over $200,000 recently, but everything in between. So I'd say on the Likert scale, I'm I'm more of the concert end of the range. Okay. I love it. Good day. Good day. (laughs) And that is a great way to end this interview. Rick, thank you so much for meeting with us and taking the time. Uh, We, and I also want to extend our thanks as well. So for our listeners who may not be familiar also with CODA's involvement with STSW, I mean, Mm -hmm. CODA is one of the reasons that we are able to have our conference. Uh, So we are tremendously, tremendously thankful for that because it recharges our batteries in ways we cannot express. So thank you very much. You're welcome. That is an organization that is near and dear to my heart. And we've been part of it for all the 24 years that I've been at CODA and will continue to do so because you do such incredible things. And I I listened to one of your earlier podcasts talking about how the conference makes a difference in the lives of social workers because you recognize there are other people that are going through the same situation. Much like you probably tell your patients, there are others that we're talking to that are going through this. We each need that self-care as well. So I'm glad the STSW does that and provides that resource for social workers as well. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Beats by Transplant Social Worker hosts Kristen and Tiffany and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any test, treatment, or procedure mentioned in the show. Always consult your own treatment team or institution for guidance on your individual care and or practice and policies.